You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Psychedelia. Psychedelia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. A happy new year to you and welcome to 2019, where not a whole lot has changed so far. But I promise that there are plenty of changes on the horizon. My name is Nick Wallace. You have tuned in to Encyclopedia on 3CR. And the program you were just hearing from is Freedom of Species, where you can... Uh find out more about all animal rights and activist and advocacy issues uh, at their website, which you can find by by visiting the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. It's the place to find out more information about every program uh, that you hear on 3CR, including our own. It's the place to subscribe to podcasts as well, so please do so and keep up to date with your favourite program, which might just be this one. And on this show, we talk about drug issues. That's our focus. Uh, Our focus is not to condemn people for their choice uh, to use a drug, nor that to, neither to condone their choice to use drug. We don't think that it's our place uh, to have a say in somebody's private life. We're here to talk about the issues uh, that arise when people do choose to take drugs or when people choose to pursue policies against other people taking drugs. That's the kind of thing that we're going to talk about on this show and we're going to continue talking about it in 2019. Uh, our, fifth, our fourth birthday will be coming up halfway through this year, so we've been going for a little bit now and uh, over over the past few years, um, our, our, uh, our start to the year has been at Rainbow Serpent Festival. Rainbow Serpent Festival is one of uh, one of the big uh, alternative music festival events uh, on Victoria's calendar. It's happening on Invasion Day weekend, on the Australia Day weekend, uh, for as long as that holds together. This year's discussion is culture wars and music festivals in Australia. We don't have a date uh, for it yet. It will be on either the Saturday or the Sunday at Rainbow Serpent. So if you're there, you can come find us and come listen. If you're not there, we'll bring it back and you can have a listen uh, to it on 3CR. In fact, what I'm going to do right now is play for you uh, just two of the speakers from 2018's Rainbow Serpent Festival panel that we hosted. The two speakers, though, are two particularly important speakers for the debate that's going on at the moment around pill testing. Those two speakers are Dr. David Caldicott from the uh, Calvary Hospital in the ACT. Uh, Dr. Caldicott uh, has been a long-time supporter, decades-long supporter of pill testing. In uh, the mid-2000s, he was uh, looking to do some pill testing. In fact, they did do some pill testing in um, in South Australia uh, and had some success with the results before they uh, weren't able to continue it, and he has been lobbying ever since. Uh, and also uh, Dr. Fiona Meesham from the UK from the organisation The Loop. Uh, the Loop recently started in Australia about six months ago, started their organisation in Australia, and uh, Dr David Caldicott is part uh, part of a, uh, a different organisation, the Stay Safe Initiative, which I believe have changed their name. can't remember what the new name was, but STA-SAFE was the name of it. They were the ones that con- that conducted the Groove and the Moo trial, pill testing trial, uh, earlier last year uh, and uh, look likely to be conducting hopefully some tests this year. We'll find out as the uh, politics of this situation continues. But these two people have both been involved with pill testing in Australia and in the UK uh, for a long time. Uh, both have different perspectives and different methods on it and both have something interesting to say. Before we get stuck into the panel though, a quick word from Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia. Hey everyone, my name's Nick Kent. I'm the National Director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia. 
Um, so we're Australia's youth drug reform organisation, and we are responding to the tragic deaths that keep occurring at events and festivals around the country. Um, we just saw a whole spate more happen in Sydney and in Melbourne over the last couple of days at New Year's, and we've seen the same stupid response from uh, the people in government not listening to expert evidence and opinion and not listening to the over four and five young Australians that want pill testing reform to stop these tragic deaths from happening. So we're doing something about it and we've got a huge campaign launch um, for the Melbourne leg of the first national youth-led campaign for pill testing. It's called Be Heard Not Harmed and it's being launched on January 16th at 3pm at Revolver Upstairs. It is a collaboration between Dancewise, um, Music Festival Harm Reduction Service, and Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia, and it's the first of um, a whole range of launches that are going to keep unfolding um, over the next couple of months and year as we ramp up a national campaign to get pill testing services introduced in every state across the country. Um, we'd love it if you came and showed your support. You can also donate at BeHeardNotHarm.com. We are a people-powered campaign, and we need your support. Thank you. See you there. This is the Rainbow Serpent panel with uh, Dr David Caldicott and Dr Fiona Meesham from January 2018 on In Psychedelia on 3CR. Thanks, Nick. Um, wow, so this is Rainbow. It's my first Rainbow. I won't say anything about the weather at all, but wow. <laughs> Quite an experience. Uh, I wanted to talk about three things, really. I'm, um, I'm an academic, I'm a professor of criminology at Durham University. I'm also a government drugs advisor, um, so I've got a policy interest in this. But as Nick said, uh, I set up, uh, co-founded, co-director of The Loop, and that's a harm reduction charity in the UK. By the way, can you hear okay at the back? Yeah, cool. Um, so I, our charity, uh, The Loop, has been going for five years, and a couple of years ago we started drug testing, well we call it drug safety testing in the UK, so I wanted to say a little bit about that and then uh, David and the other guests are going to drill down into the Australian situation. So first of all I'll say something about the European context because the whole drug situation is very different in the UK to in Australia as I'm increasingly coming to realise and saw last night as well. Uh, so I'll say something about what happened in the UK. Uh, and how um, our first couple of years' findings, we've been really pleased with them and to think about how we might measure success in terms of drug safety testing because it is going to happen here. Uh, so it's what do we want to get out of it and how do we show that it's working to carry on with it after the first pilots. Um, there's also, if you're interested, there's lots of... Uh, clips on YouTube, we've had a lot of press in the UK, so you can, uh, uh, if you Google the loop and Google drug safety testing or multi-agency testing, you can have a look at the clips. We don't have Wi-Fi, so I can't uh, show them now. So in the UK, we take more ecstasy than anybody else in Europe. We, um, adult ecstasy use has been fairly stable for the past couple of decades or so, although it's slightly falling amongst young people, but generally, we are a nation of stable high drug use and about one in 20 uh, young people will have tried ecstasy in the past year obviously it's more likely to be in festivals in clubs and we know from the global drug survey that the festivals and clubs are the most likely place in the uk that people will be taking ecstasy we tend to take it less at home less at home than i think you do here uh, but it also varies massively between events. So I do surveys at festivals, uh, and uh, 
some of the lower level family festivals you'd find about two in ten people take illegal drugs but then at the most prolific drug festivals uh, and the ones that are more focused on electronic dance music it could be anything up to eight in ten people will be taking illegal drugs so I'd say it's much more obvious and apparent than perhaps at some of the Australian festivals um, but the other thing to say is that it's, um, it's cocaine it's ketamine and it's alcohol as well uh, British people tend to drink all day every day throughout the festival starting with lager and then for breakfast and it sort of goes down from there but we've also got in the UK the highest drug related death rate on record and the highest drug related death rate in Europe um, and the significance of that is that if you chart the increase in purity in the UK, it actually tracks with the increase in drug-related deaths. So this is just for ecstasy. Um, we only had eight people die from ecstasy-related deaths in 2010. And the amount of MDMA in a pill was under 50 milligrams, according to police seizures. Uh, but then if you look at the last year we've got figures for, 63 people died uh, in 2016 for an ecstasy-related death. And the average MDMA content of a British pill, according to police seizures, uh, is about 165 milligrams. In an out-loop testing, it's about 185 milligrams, and that's the average. So we can have anything from zero right up to 350 or more milligrams. All sorts of different pills. Um, these, the, uh, the bottom two pictures are just some of the pills that we've tested on one day at one festival, and they can range from 20 milligrams in content right up to 250 or more. So the issue with that is that you've got really high uh, MDMA content pills, but also it's uh, big variations in that purity. So if people want to appropriately and sensibly dose, they've got no idea what they're taking if we don't have testing on site. It's really difficult for them to know. Um, so as I said, we've got the highest drug-related death rate in Europe, it's interesting if you look at Portugal, for example, that has one of the lowest drug-related death rates in Europe, and think about the policing of drugs and this idea about what is the effect of the policing of these drugs? Does it reduce drug-related harm? What are the consequences? And it seems to be that we're getting increased evidence from across Europe that actually the countries that have a more lenient or uh, tolerant approach are having better health outcomes. And that led The Lancet to, uh, to agree with that, that actually policing could be having a negative impact on the public health outcomes. Uh, I mean, lots of us already know that, but you know, this is starting to be well-recognised by the people going out and doing the uh, reviews. So we've got the highest prevalence in Europe, uh, we've got the highest drug-related death rate in Europe. We've also got the lowest prices, though. Um, I'm amazed by how expensive drugs are in Australia, uh, and maybe that, uh, maybe that adds to the moderation here compared to some British festivals. Uh, but you can buy three pills for £10. You could buy 40 milligrams of... Uh, sorry, you could get... Um, a gram of MDMA for £40, you could get a gram of cocaine for £40, and these are really high purity as well, 60 70 80%. Um, but we've also got the police in the UK uh, have been squeezed by budgets with austerity. I think austerity has really hit the UK much, much harder than here. And um, we've had 20% cut to policing since 2010, which is 20,000 less police policing these sorts of events. So the consequence of that is we've got less police um, and they're starting to have to make priorities, decide what are they going to police. They cannot arrest everybody for everything. If you've got a festival of 50,000 people and 8 in 10 are taking drugs, it's physically impossible for the police to arrest everybody that they potentially could. So these are the sorts of things that are going through the minds of the police. And this has led the UK police 
to really be a driving force in terms of more imaginative and radical harm reduction initiatives in Durham and in Bristol, uh, and soon in Thames Valley as well. They've got diversion away from the criminal justice system, uh, and the police are coming to us now. They're coming to my charity and saying, hey, we would like to get involved with your uh, drug safety testing. So this is being... Uh, not just supported by the police, but it's partly being driven by the police as well. But that's because of the wider situation that we're in. Um, one of the police that we're working with now, I asked him why did he want drug safety testing, because uh, he came to us and said that he wanted it to happen in Windsor. And he said, I've just seen too much death in my time as a police officer. So, you know, that was the motivation from the police themselves. So in Europe, we've had uh, drug safety testing since uh, 1992. So this is nothing new. 25 years in the, in the Netherlands. Uh, then in Belgium, in Switzerland, in Austria, Spain, Portugal. This is right across. We've got, um, we've got some good evidence from right across Europe uh, that this is being successfully rolled out. We've got uh, in the UK, a postal service from 2009 set up by David Wedenos. And then in, uh, for uh, the public access in a festival, we set up the loop in 2013 and started delivering the testing in 2016. We were in two festivals first. As Nick said, it was Secret Garden Party and uh, Kendall Calling. Uh, Secret Garden Party is Young People's Electronic Dance Music Festival, quite similar to this in a lot of ways in size and vibe. Kendall Calling is a family festival, very, very different. Uh, and so it was, there were two pilots, went very well, uh, and then we rolled them out to three festivals last year, and I'm going to show you some of the things that we found last year. Well, why do we want to do this? Um, um, this is, uh, obviously, I'm sure you'll be aware about this, just a little reminder, really. Hopefully, you can identify and remove from circulation high-risk sub high substances that are in circulation, whatever they might be. Um, but also, when you give out the results, you can hook people in with the test, to have a discussion with them about their own drug use, um, preferably with trained, experienced healthcare professionals, so you can have a dialogue with people who might never have talked about their drug use before with a healthcare professional. This might be the first conversation that they've had about that. Um, and then you can inform the services on site. So if we were testing here, there's an opportunity then to let the medics know if there's a medical emergency, what they're dealing with, uh, and also the police in relation to what they might be dealing with as well as dance-wise, whoever else is operating a service here. So that intelligence can be spread around the festival. But also you can carry that off-site. You can be letting drug services know off-site, hospitals off-site, uh, schools off-site. So there's lots of potential about to use that information in much more productive ways. But also I think finally, the unique thing about uh, drug safety testing or pill testing is if you talk to an individual and test what they've got and then compare it with what they've actually got, you're able then to target Sorry, a sofa just zoomed past really fast. It made me laugh. Um, but you can then make that connection between what they've actually bought and what they think they've bought, so you can target the appropriate messages to them. And I'll give an example of that in a minute of what we did. The concerns, though, are uh, the, the sorts of concerns that people raise with me. Firstly, does it increase drug use? Uh, the idea about making drugs illegal is it deters people from taking them because they're supposedly dangerous. Well, if you do the testing, does that take away the deterrent value because they're no longer so dangerous and you see an increase in prevalence? That's how the argument goes about why we shouldn't introduce it. The other concern is that you might identify dangerous drugs, take them out of circulation, but people then go and buy more drugs on site from a dealer. So all you're doing is driving demand um, for the dealers on site, which would be seen as um, potentially a negative situation. And then we want to ask, does it actually reduce drug-related harm at all? Um, what do we know about that? And then what if somebody dies? What if you give somebody some results, they then take the, the substance, they die, who's liable? Who could be sued? Uh, and what the implications of that would be? Which are a concern 
when talking to festivals about getting this off the ground, that's the these are the questions that I get asked. And um, you know, the, the festival's concerned about being sued. The police are concerned about being sued. Uh, it, you know, they're all concerned about the bad publicity. So this is at the forefront of their minds. Uh, and then finally, this idea that if you're testing, you might be normalising uh, and sending out a message to the next generation that it's somewhere it's okay, acceptable to be doing this. So what we do in the UK, as Nick said, it's not reagents. We've got a full pop-up lab, about £100,000 worth of equipment, sterling. Uh, we do... Um, people bring us a small sample, one pill, a scoop of powder. They put it in a bag. It's taken to the lab at the back. They get a raffle ticket, a unique raffle ticket number. They come back in half an hour now and get the test results. Uh, and then that substance goes through uh, a sort of production line of about four different tests. So we've got ultraviolet uh, spectroscopy, infrared spectroscopy. We do this sort of solvent extraction to be able to find out the MDMA content of pills. Uh, and we also do use reagents for things uh, like very potent substances, LSD and 2CB. So that's the sort of uh, processing. People ask me, is it legal? And I've had quite a lot of meetings since I've been here with police as well as uh, Ministry of Health uh, and politicians. And the way that we set it up in the UK was, I went, to, I went to my lawyers, I said, how can we set this up to be with the right side of the law? in brackets just and um, so that they basically said Fiona do XYZ and this is what we did so we've set it up um, that we can say to the police this is legal uh, and that therefore we're here with the um, approval of the police so first of all we'll be in a police porter cabin quite often uh, and that's important because then the drugs are coming technically it's onto police property even if we're actually doing the testing uh, but the main thing is that we're there with the permission of the police anyway but the other thing is when we test the drugs, pretty much all of it is destroyed. So uh, in the British legislation under the Misuse of Drugs Act, if you take a drug off somebody to destroy it, like throw it down the toilet, um, that's not possession. You wouldn't be arrested for that. So it's the same idea. If we're destroying it in the testing process, then uh, it wouldn't be covered if the primary purpose is the ultimate destruction. What they could argue in court is the primary purpose is testing, in which case... That is a legally grey area. But if the police want us to be there, then they're highly unlikely to arrest me for that. However, that is a small possibility. Um, and then the police stay away from our tents. And that isn't as big a deal as it sounds because the police stay away from the medics and they stay away from welfare and harm reduction because they already know that if, if people are having a bad time on drugs and they see someone in a uniform, they're gonna, it's going to make them go in a downward spiral. So usually our uniform police will stay away from uh, the, the, the sort of medical area of the festival. So we are located next to the paramedics um, and well away from the police. And because they want us there, they're not going to be trying to disrupt it. Um, and you know, usually they'll, they'll uh, recognise that and uh, be appropriately uh, recognise that. Occasionally, if they get too close, we'll say, look, you're a bit too close, you need to go further away, and they'll do that. Um, but we also obviously never give any drugs back. We test everything, and then if there's anything left over, the um, remnants are given to, given to the police and they destroy it. We don't give anything back to the user at all. And then um, the most important bit of this is the uh, giving out the message to people. We don't just give out the results willy-nilly. They have to come down, have a 15-minute brief intervention. And we did this to actually get it off the ground. This is part of the deal for us to be able to do this in the UK, was we've got trained healthcare professionals. People sit down with them. They'll say what their medical history is, uh, what the current medications are, are there only prescription medications, over-the-counter medications, uh, have they been drinking alcohol, a whole picture of their drug use and wider medical situation, and then they give them results of the drugs, and then they give them the harm reduction advice appropriate to them and appropriate to those drugs. So that's the idea, it's this whole package that we sell. 
And then in terms of liability, uh, the, our lawyer's argument, and it's technical, but it's sort of important if you want to get it off the ground, is that if somebody comes into our tent, um, they are recognising that they're going to be taking the drug, or they either have taken it or likely to take it by the fact that they're entering and getting it tested. And therefore, it will be very difficult to prove in court, impossible, our lawyers say, that um, they had no intention of taking the drug, and the only reason that they did, that we can prove beyond reasonable doubt, is because they had the test results. And that changed them from 99.9% .9 sure they weren't going to take it to going to take it. Uh, and that is seen as it will be null and void by the fact that they entered the tent. So we're, we're, that is a good enough explanation for us to be able to get this off the ground. Uh, but we always have... Our lawyers come and visit us on site uh, every year, so we're continually re reviewing that. Um, and also, we make sure that the police are in all of our um, photos, and when we win awards, we won four awards, the police come along when we collect the awards, uh, so that they're absolutely side-by-side side with us, so that people can see this is with police support. And that's really helped in terms of getting other police on side. So it's been like a PR exercise with the police as well. So what happened then uh, last year... So last year, we tested just under 2,000 samples. Um, we gave uh, these brief interventions by the healthcare professionals to about 1,500 people. Eight in 10 people in the UK had the drugs they thought they had. It might not be the purity that they uh, expected, but nevertheless, they had the drugs they thought they had. And around about four in 10, five in 10 or so, um, what, once they got what they thought they got, they said they were going to take a smaller amount. And the, that's really important in the UK. If you bear in mind the graph I showed you of ecstasy deaths is that if we can flag up to people how strong the pills are and say hey just take a quarter or just take a half then we might be able to make a real big positive indent into drug related harm on site um, so that was part of the selling point in relation to that um, but what about the people who didn't get what they thought so two in ten didn't get what they expected so um, about a third of them uh, said that they were going to take a smaller amount. So it wasn't what they intended, but they'd take a smaller amount. About another quarter said they'll be careful that, in terms of mixing it with other drugs. And the example of that would be cocaine. They thought they bought cocaine. It turned out to be ketamine, which is half the price in the UK. So the dealer's going to double his profit margin. Get, go into a festival uh, and sell uh, ketamine as cocaine. Um, and they were going to take it and said, you know what, I'll take it anyway, but I'll be careful about drinking with alcohol now because we'd flagged that up as a concern. So those were the sorts of uh, things that we could do. About another quarter said that they were going to throw the drug away. They were going discard to discard it. And that is a key measure in uh, Canada and in Europe. If you tell somebody what their drug is and they say, you know what, I really don't want to take that anymore, for a quarter of them, then that's, that's a big success rate. However, the biggest success for us that we were most pleased with was... Uh, one in five people, when they heard what it was, they said, you know what, I've got more drugs that I don't want, have them. And they gave us a whole load more drugs that we were able to dispose of and give to the police. And that's, that was win-win because the police were delighted, we'd taken stuff out of circulation. The medics were delighted because potentially these were harmful drugs that they'd given up. And obviously the users were delighted because they found out what a load of shit it was and they didn't want to be carrying it around with them um, and be potentially incriminated. Uh, so that was, that was sort of the, the hook in terms of pushing this forwards. Look at one-fifth of the people who haven't got what they thought they got want us to dispose of their drugs. And these are the sorts of things that they've been missold. So un things that aren't harmful, like salt missold as ketamine, uh, brown sugar missold as MDMA crystal, we found uh, lots of examples of that. But also we found ground-up malaria tablets, chloroquine, is was missold as cocaine, and not, not infrequently, actually. 
Uh, I've got no idea whether it's a thing here or not. I guess you guys don't know either. Um, uh, and we also found things like boric acid, which is a household cleaner. And also a particular concern for us was N-ethylpentalone, the red one. And that's a pentalone analogue, which we've just started seeing in the UK last summer. And pentalone, um, it, it's, N-ethylpentalone lasts about 36 hours. It's a really strong stimulant, but it looks and smells identical to MDMA crystal. So people wouldn't know at first glance. But when they, instead of getting two hours of euphoria, and beyond on the dance floor, they have this 36-hour speed trip and they have anxiety, aggression, paranoia um, and can be hospitalised and it's potentially fatal as well. And this was a massive concern. Uh, some, something like 8% of our samples last year turned out to be pentalone, missold as MDMA. The benefit of that was that we could put out tweets and say to people, you know what, on-site dealers are mis-selling pentalone as MDMA, please be careful. And then they could go and present to the medics early and, and they could say to the medics, you know what, I've had it tested and I know I've had pentalone. And the medics knew what they were dealing with, um, which was important right across the site. Uh, and we were told that that had a big impact on reducing drug-related harm. So these are the sorts of things we tweet. We've put out tweets for warnings on high purity, as well as low purity, and as well as contaminants. And this is a tricky message for the police. It took quite a while for the police to get their heads around this, because they said, it's advertising for dealers. Hey, look how strong these pills are. And we said, yes, it could be seen as that. But also, if we have people dying from double-dropping pills on site that are this strength, uh, half a gram of pure MDMA, We've got to weigh up the balance of this, which is more important. Um, and the police have come on board with that message now. So what we're doing now? Um, well, we are about to roll out testing in two city centres in the UK, all being well, in Windsor and in Durham. And these are going to be, uh, these are going to be open to anybody. So anybody can come into the city centre uh, and be having their drugs tested and talking to a healthcare professional. So we're moving beyond festivals and beyond nightclubs because obviously festivals are really expensive to get into and we want people to, anyone to be able to test their drugs, not just people who can afford to come to a festival. Um, we've also got partnerships with uh, big high-profile brands. This isn't necessarily because we want to be hanging out with the big high-profile brands, but obviously this is about reaching a bigger audience and having that legitimacy and that uh, recognition, and also for our messaging and our alerts to go out wider as well. We've started doing annual surveys across UK festivals so we can track trends in drug use too. Um, and uh, I, was help, I helped with setting up the Copenhagen drug consumption room testing facility there. And the idea is, I know they're thinking about this in, uh, in Australia too, that when people go to an injecting facility, that they can have drugs tested there before they inject so they have a better idea. And this is particularly important in relation to the opiate crisis. Um, and we've also got a white paper coming out that will be online in, uh, in mid-March now. Um, and finally, we've got NHS uh, accredited training courses for event staff because um, the event staff, obviously, it's important that they're up to speed with all of this. Um, so going back to the uh, four points in the beginning then about why um, we think and hope that drug safety testing can reduce drug-related harm, um, in terms of removing drugs from the circulation, <coughs> uh, four in ten said they'd take a smaller amount of the drug. So we know that it's having an impact in terms of not increasing prevalence, but hopefully reducing prevalence on site. We also got one in five who didn't have what they expected to dispose of the drugs with us, so that helps to be getting the high-risk substances off-site. But what about them being uh, hidden or hard-to-reach groups? Well, nine in ten of the people that we saw had never ever spoken to a healthcare professional about their drug use before. So it is an important opportunity that we can, uh, can maximise this situation, this dialogue with a healthcare professional, and that can help in terms of selling drug safety testing. Uh, but also we said to people... 
do you want to carry on this discussion with a healthcare professional? Do you want a, a referral to a drug service? And one in 20 said, you know what, I do. Um, and we could then give them uh, information and access and contacts to local drug services so they can carry on having those discussions. Um, we also were giving all the information to all the on-site services, so the medics, the police, things like that. Uh, and in terms of the festivals themselves, uh, the, the festivals believe that that reduced hospitalisations. So Secret Garden Party used to have about 18, 19 hospitaliza- hospitalisations a year. When we started testing, it went down to one. This Sorry, drug-related. It went down to only one drug-related hospitalisation. And that woman didn't know why she was hospitalised. She came back to our service on the Sunday to get the drug tested because she wanted to know why she'd been hospitalised. Um, and then last year we were at Boomtown, which is a very big festival, 50,000. I should say British festivals, a medium-sized festival is 25 to 75,000. A large one is over 75,000. So this will probably count as a small, maybe just, just a medium one. So there's a lot more people on site. Um, they said that uh, they had an independent medical report which said that uh, there was a 25% reduction in drug-related medical problems on site, uh, which they believed was due to our testing. Um, but the final things to say was about this unique connection between what people think they've bought and what they've actually bought. We use this example of um, the NFL Pentalone alerts. Rather than put out a general warning for NFL Pentalone, we could say, look, MDMA is being, uh, is being missold as MDMA, so we could target the MDMA users correctly. And one of the things that the medic said was there were at least two people hospitalised who went to seek prompt medical attention who ended up in intensive care and the medic's belief was both of them, their lives were saved because they sought prompt attention because of the testing. So although I have to be very cautious about um, making grand claims, I think we can track these individual case studies and say, you know what, I do believe that this can save lives. Thank you. You're listening to CCR. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? I'm David, and it's a, a real pleasure to be back with you again. Uh, and, um, yeah, look, uh, I see this very much for me as a, a return to my tribe. I'm the sort of nerd that came back to report. Uh, so that's what I'm going to do to you uh, today and let you know what's been going on and what's on the horizon. So the first thing that I love doing that's very Australian, we don't do this anywhere is, uh, else, is to pay respects to our elders, both the, the traditional custodians of the land and also their elders here, um, not only academic elders, but elders um, of a psychonautical experience, people that I learn from all the time, so I need to pay my respects. This is Des Manderson, who's one of my mentors, and so there are many elders that all of us rely upon um, to, 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 for having got us where we are right now. I want to tell you a little bit about this. You might have read a bit about this, but um, you probably should hear a little bit more so that you know what actually happened as far as the politics are concerned. So here's the scenario. Medical experts and law enforcement contrive of a plot to conduct evil pill testing to stop young Karen Barons getting hurt at a music festival. But they're exposed by a plucky band of conservative politicians unencumbered by any evidence or any expertise in that environment. And that's kind of what happened uh, in Canberra. I should warn you that I I may end up getting excited and cursing, and and so there could be political uh, incorrectness in uh, in this presentation. This is my mob. Um, At the moment, contraception has been a failure in my clan for a long time. so, but I'm a fairly simple person. Uh, I've bred even more since we last spoke. I'm now five under the age of eight. But this is what, thank you. No, no, it's a failure rather than a success, sir. Um, but this is what I do for a living. Uh, you know, I stop you Muppets from dying when you overindulge. That's kind of my gig. 
That's who I am. With even within our profession, we're considered somewhat as cowboys. Um, people look at us askance, and we all have Celtic tattoos. And one of the beautiful things about this space is that I get to pick and choose what sort of um, you know subspecialities I like. And my subspeciality is music festivals and drugs. And it's a, an ironic circle of life thing that, you know, I started off professionally trying to stop young people putting things in their mouths, and now I'm doing it with my own family. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about wicked problems. And so this idea of a wicked problem of, is the idea of a problem that keeps on changing its face. It's not like calculus. It's not like what antibiotic should we use. It's a problem that alters every time we find a solution. And it's a very worthy problem. It's not just the medical profession who are charged with answering this. There's academics and researchers. And I have a strong belief that the solution to wicked problems, particularly in the context of drugs, also lie in the hands of consumers of drugs as well. So to put it in, uh, give you some ideas, stakeholders largely can't agree about the solutions of wicked problems. It requires complex judgment, sometimes not so easy when you're under the influence. There are no clear stopping rules. There's no right or wrong solutions, just better solutions. And alternatives need to be discovered all the time. Perhaps the most important thing is that there are strong moral, ethical and political elements to wicked problems. And the political element uh, to wicked problems and the political business is important because wicked problems can only be answered across electoral cycles. So one party will not want to address a problem that might or might not be addressable within the course of their elected period. So these are fine examples of current wicked problems all around the world. And of course drugs. Here's a nice stereotypical picture of drugs because that's what all drug consumers look like. And the reality is, is we've all always used drugs everywhere, in every society where there's a literature, where there's an anthropological history, there has been drug consumption, admittedly to different effect, but it's, it's throughout humanity. It defines our species. And prohibition is a very recent thing. It's in, in terms of your, your clock of the evolution of humanity. It's only the last five or ten minutes before midnight that prohibition has even been a thing. And it's largely governed by these three failing drug treaties. And it's cost trillions of dollars. Trillions. Now, I am not a mathematician. If I was, I'd be able to calculate that having five children is not a financially sensible thing to do. So I've drawn a picture for you to show what this looks like. That's what a million dollars looks like. In, uh, in a certain you know, you'd think it'd be a lot more, but that's what a, only a million looks like. It's probably enough to retire on these days. A trillion is a million million or a thousand billion or 12 zeros. But if you put that amount on double stacked pallets next to that little man in red, that's what a trillion dollars looks like. And a trillion dollars will buy you all of the professional sports teams in the United States of America. And that is what is being spent on a war that is not achieving anything, probably, in fact, making the situation worse. I cannot begin to tell you what would we done with that money were it to be put to something slightly more philanthropic. In Australia, it's not at all different. It's exactly the same. The vast over, there's supposed to be three tiers within the framework of Australian drugs policy, and all of the money, at least two-thirds of it anyway, is going towards law enforcement. 
I would emphasise again, there are no key performance indicators. If Fiona or I have to do a trial and, and, and get some results, we have to demonstrate the success of what we do. We have to prove that it works. And the only people who don't have to do that in drugs uh, research and policy is law enforcement. They can do whatever they want, spend however much they want, and they have to prove nothing that it works. And I guess for me as a doctor, the thing that interests me is what's the outcome as far as the populations? Let's say, for example, deaths are concerned. And if you look at Portugal, there are very few deaths indeed. The UK is doing better. But to suggest that our approach in Australia is anything that approaches good is nonsense. The United States, which is, has, has one of the more repressive first world uh, approaches towards drugs, is terrible. It has had no impact whatsoever on the, uh, uh, the addiction rates within the United States. And all it has done is increase the number of incarcerated people and the amount of expenditure on drugs. So I guess one of the big questions that we have to ask in this space is qui bono. This is a dude called Cicero. And qui bono is a superb question to ask when you want to get to the bottom line of why something exists. Who stands to benefit from the status quo as it exists? And frankly, there are a couple of people. This gets back to a chap called Buchanan, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1986. And he's a great man for saying, well, who is winning from this? There are groups that are actually winning from this. There's a small group of people who are getting money, and because legislation has been passed to maintain that status quo, continue to get money. Obviously, drug cartels win. Now, that's a no-brainer. But what you don't appreciate and is not regularly put about in the media is that banks who are laundering money get a great deal of, out of this. HSBC in uh, Mexico was found guilty of increasing the size of its bank windows so that uh, notes could be passed through and laundered from dealers. So these people are absolutely implicit in this. And then sadly, law enforcement... You would be a foolish leader of law enforcement if you were to give away the amount of money that you're currently being given. Regardless of its impact on society, if you're getting a, a billion dollars a year, you would be frowned upon by your colleagues if you just let it get, get away from you just because you were trying to do the right thing. I love this photo. Not for most of this photo. I love this photo for this guy. There's a whole bunch of other people doing dumb stuff in this photo. And this, this guy in this photo is you. This guy is not paying attention to what everybody else is doing. And I love you for this. My voyage started in 2001 with a drug that resembles these two, but looks like this. This is paramethoxyamphetamine, which has recently been... In fact, yesterday, people were speculating whether or not it was back in, in vogue in Melbourne. I don't think you're overdosed. You, actually, you're out of cell phone contact. You might not have heard there's been a mass overdose in Melbourne again. Um, plus ça change, as they say. And some people have been speculating it's PMA. Fiona and I don't think it is. And this is what I've been doing, is messing around prior to making babies. Um over five years doing reagent testing in South Australia and asking questions of people like yourselves who use drugs. We published this. There's no question about our data being available to the people who make decisions in this country. It's just ignored. 
And again, this is the sort of data replicated around the world because people are people. We haven't, you're not so far away from everyone else that you've evolved into a separate subcategory of humans as far as your drug consumption is concerned. You behave in the same way when somebody tells you what's in your drugs. The vast majority of people, when they're told that there's something in their pills that they didn't want, they get rid of their goddamn pills. And this continues over time. Because, uh, contrary to what tabloid journalists say, most people who use drugs aren't head injured, brain impaired, or intellectually requiring hospital admission. They're not pursuing the hospital experience. They want to stay safe. A decade ago, a decade ago, the AMA agreed that this was a good idea. Now, the current president of the AMA is, needs to go back and do some reading because he's unaware that this is on his policy books. But the Australian Medical Association backs a trial of pill testing dated from November 2005. This is me. I'm a shockingly dangerous person here, according to somebody. And that's just not my sort of uranium-coated uh, semen. No, ma'am. That is this guy here. This is the man who thinks that I'm a fiercely dangerous person. And the reason I'm dangerous is because I have the temerity, like so many among you, to contradict what is a, a, a common uh, 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 precept within Australia, that there is a morality element to drug consumption. Have a read of this. This was my first experience, if you ever get a chance, of writing an op-ed. And I was far more brutal uh, in those days than I am now. But I tell you, the political shenanigans in this space are ludicrous. The Ministerial Council on Drug Strategy in 2005 agreed behind closed doors and behind freedom of information that they would not condone pill testing in Australia. They in, uh, instead decided to attack the people we were working with and demand uh, information about how it, all of our work in South Australia was being funded, which was very easy because it wasn't being funded at all. Smith & Nephew are a group of analytical providers who agreed very kindly. They saw the benefits of um, providing us with kit uh, with which we could do some on-site pill testing. Very early stuff, early days. And this is what they agreed to lend us. And then, or out of the blue, they said they couldn't do it anymore. And it wasn't until five years after the event at a conference in, uh, in Chile that we found out that it was actually at the behest of customs um, Smith had been approached and told that their contract with customs would be at risk if they collaborated with pill testers. That is the politics of drugs policy in Australia, and nothing has changed since then. We, in the meantime, published some stuff. We were the first people to describe methadrone in Australia. This is my toy. This is the toy we will be bringing to Rainbow, as and when I can be sure that it's not going to get nicked from me. Um, this is exactly the same toy that Fiona is using at the moment to such good effect in the UK. You might have heard, back in September, this was a good day. It was announced that we were going to do pill testing in Canberra. Um, and this was after, this was not spontaneous goodwill on the part of the government. This was after two years of graft to get to this place. Again, the AMA decided that it was safe to come out and support it. So, sort of well done to them. But more importantly, the editorials were behind us. It, and that's an indication. Editorials exist to sell papers. And that is a reflection of the general support in the community. Those people who care what other people think about them were telling me that as many as 85% of people in the ACT were in favour of pill testing. And it, it even made the ACT's health website at the time. However... Around about mid-October, or the first week of October, something changed in the wind. 
And you see this. You see this when there is about to be a political move. This is my friend Andrew Levy. God bless him. Who earns his wage from uh, testing people's urine uh, and and doing you know workplace drug testing. Not particularly rewarding, but he he must enjoy something about it. But he was he spontaneously came out and made a statement about how it's not a magic bullet, and nobody in our research group had, to our recollection, claimed that it was. We hadn't claimed that it was a round of Grand Padano cheese either. But th- this was what was faced with us o- of the start of the week. Then this strange lady, Elizabeth Lee, came out with a quote of Andrew Levy. They they work together, these people. It's no magic bullet. And people who do pill testing definitely have higher death rates, as if the two were linked. What wasn't put out there was people do pill testing in countries with higher death rates because they need to. Then some guy who is a uh, uh, a criminal defence lawyer associated with the promoter of spilt milk came out and said that the law needed to be changed prior to it being introduced. One of the first things that we ever do when we're setting this stuff up is get a bajillion legal opinions. And I can tell you there's one thing I know about this. The law does not need to be changed for pill testing to occur in our jurisdiction. And this is how I found out. Triple J, the promoter. Um, rang Triple J and said, you know what, we won't be doing pill testing this year. There was no call to the people who had set it up. There was no call to the government. It was announced on Triple J by the promoter. And my response quite clearly was, I, I, there, were, there were unspeakables spoken. They released a press release. I won't bore you with it. It's ridiculous. But at the end of it, to add insult to injury... They said they'd keep fighting. Well, I look, I'm, I was delighted with that. That's tremendous. They had done, done nothing in this space whatsoever to start with. This, I have to say, you have to see the sort of this humour in any of these things. And I don't know if this is, is common parlance within the modern generation of consumers, but I have to say, this headline made me laugh. Yeah. Nobody else from the mainstream got it, but I had a little giggle. But this had been planned. This had been planned back in August. The Liberal Party in the ACT had flagged it in August to say that the event was occurring on Crown land and that they were going to block it because they could get the feds to do so. The shadow attorney general wrote to Fiona Nash, the entertaining the ex-senator and uh, Minister Hunt, requesting that they ban it. And shortly after that, it was blocked. The Canberra Liberals went on to congratulate um, Jeremy Hansen for blocking it. And we, we flagged this, but the damage was done. It wasn't going to happen for spilt milk. But I'm not sad. I'm not down. This is my cl- class of ethics students from the ANU Medical School, representative of many medical people from all around Australia. When we had a debate about, and a robust debate about the merits of pill testing, Unanimously, unanimously, they agreed that this would be something that they would be backing when they qualify. So the question really is now, not whether we should be doing this in Australia, but whether or not it's actually ethical not to do it. It's probably unethical and immoral to block it anymore. And part of the problem here, I think, is the world in which we live. We are now in a world of anti-science, where the 
basic science scientist. I'm often described as a, a pill-testing advocate. I'm not. I'm a scientist and a doctor. That's like saying I'm an advocate for chairs. You're one of those strange guys who uses chairs. No, they're there. They're useful. I should use it. That's what I am. I'm a scientist. I'm not fringe. Science is about considering the evidence and arriving at a conclusion. And what drugs policy, particularly in, in Australia, is doing is anti-science. It's deciding on what conclusion they want and ignoring the refuting evidence for that conclusion. What's going on here? What is happening? Because back in the day, I used to, used to think, I'm not a stupid person, I just assumed that these people were stupider than me. But the reality is, is that a lot of these people are not dumb. And this is where I want to introduce you to the concept of cultural cognition. Because this is going to be useful to all of you, particularly our friends from the, first, the previous speakers, about how do we change people's perceptions. This is what's going on. This is why you have a great raging orange man baby in charge of the most powerful state in the uh, country in the world. This is the man you need to read if you're interested in this shit. A guy called Dan Can, who's been tasked with trying to work out what the hell is going on with gun law in the United States. Why? Why can no traction be gained in gun law in the United States. Now, with respect to the, the angst that drugs policy causes us in Australia, gun law in the United States actually represents, from a public health perspective, a considerably more dangerous pr prospect. And the answer is that members of the public actually do trust the science. They just don't trust the people who disagree with them. What we believe about facts tells us who we are. And there's this concept of an identity protection cognition, a way of protecting who you are and how you think by aligning yourself with symbols. And that could be, I'm in favor of, gun, of guns being readily available. I'm in favor of prosecuting people who use drugs. They might not necessarily be the most logical conclusions, but they are ideas which people subscribe to to indicate that they belong to a certain tribe. What happens if they're, if, they're, if they're brighter? Well, actually, what you see is you see a double-down effect. They notice these trends faster, and they can be harder to change. And if we educate them, we see this phenomenon known as pushback, which is, means, essentially, we're just all doomed, all doomed entirely. I don't actually think that that's really the case. I think it is possible to intervene in such a way that we can change people's behaviours. And this chap Buchanan I was telling you about talks about entrenched behaviours and then every now and again things called loose spots occurring. Loose spots are where there's an edifice that stands in the way where there can be a degree of movement and shake that can be exploited. And I tell you now, there are two loose spots in drugs policy in Australia at the moment. The first one is the emergence of medicinal cannabis as a drug. This is something that is going to alter how people perceive drugs, the fact that they may actually be useful to people in the context of a medically su su uh, supervised profile. I think the other thing is a negative thing, which is the emergence of the fentanyls. People are going to die in this country this season because of the, uh, the synthetic fentanyls. They're all synthetic, the illicit fentanyls. In British Columbia, the very kit that Fiona is using, that I am trying to use, is being used in injecting rooms to identify fentanyls for people who inject drugs. 
And it makes not a skerrick of sense for us not to be doing exactly the same thing in Australia. It's the easiest, lowest hanging fruit to stop us going down the line of a situation which in the United States is resulting in Chicago with more deaths from fentanyls than from gunshot wounds, which in itself is an extraordinary statistic. So I welcome you to this debate. This is a debate that we need to pursue vigorously, based on facts, but also I put to you with humor, with a smile, not with mockery. But there is a reason why people are standing against us, and we need to talk about why those people are standing against us. Whether it be for your cognitive liberty to use drugs, which is a time long past in my life, my job is to try to keep people who want to exercise their cognitive liberties alive. But our ends are both the same. You see this at the highest levels. The Chief Commissioner of Police in Victoria, which I, I think as you're the higher up you get in any organisation that's in the government, the more political your position is because your wage depends upon it. But he rather foolishly put out the idea that it can't be done, despite the fact that within two yards of me, there's a woman who's actually doing it regularly. He had the temerity to suggest that it was impossible to do, which is, of course, nonsense. I think the problem for our political colleagues is that if they get in, into this space where they're bickering about drugs policy, what they might find is that moving from popular policy into something a little bit... This is the Overton's window of political opportunity or possibility. Things might change in a direction which renders them unelectable. There will, you will see swings in a, in a way which will move away from those people who are taking a certain policy. There is no doubt that the general perception in Australia, outside tabloid journalists, outside right-wing politics, there is a move towards greater tolerance. We believe this in the, uh, the ANU, and this is why we're doing this work with us at the moment. So where are we now? One of the interesting side effects about the nasty shenanigans, the village politics that got spilt milk canned was that the a AFP, the, the police themselves, and the Labour government in the ACT have never been so committed to a trial of pill testing. That will happen this year. That will happen in the first third of this year. And every intervention made by our opponents in this space makes them look even more ridiculous, less relevant, and, and smaller. Whatever the opposite of greatness is in politics, the opposite of that is what they will be remembered for in the history books. I, I, I'm a great believer in letting morons say moronic stuff. That's absolutely fine by me. But you do not put people who don't believe in blood transfusions in charge of the blood bank. You do not put people who don't like immunizations in charge of infectious disease clinics. You let them get on with whatever strange, quirky ideas they want and get on with the business of providing science. People who are standing against pill testing and a reform of drugs policy in this country are paddling in the shallow end of a very much deeper pool that the rest of us are being forced to swim in. There is no doubt that what we are trying to do is more of the same. Australia has not advanced from Nancy Reagan's just say no. It just hasn't. There's nothing innovative in this space. So we need to sort out some rational legislation based on harm, move away from the 80s. And 
to be honest, one of the interesting things that Australia did recently, I, I dine out on this when I go overseas, they attempted to ban all plants that contained dimethyltryptamine, which of course is hilarious because that includes your national floral emblem. Genius, absolute genius. And why is that? Because not one of them bothered to seek any advice before introducing legislation that was dumb. I think New Zealand is doing a good job of things. I would expect that New Zealand, which is busy, is going to have a referendum on, medicinal can on, um, on recreational cannabis and is introducing medicinal cannabis this year. The steaming pile of poo that we find ourselves will be put to shame by whatever the Kiwis put in place. The Portuguese, like we saw, just are not seeing people die in the rate that we are. And there are risk-based rules. Other people are doing other things which are sensible which Australia refuses to even consider. And this is what we're faced with. This is an irresistible force, which is a generation of you, versus what appears to be an immovable object, which are really a generation of old people waiting to shuffle off. No offence, sir, there. I know you're here to listen. The first rule of finding yourself in a hole is to stop fucking digging. And this is what, happens to, what has to happen in Australia. This business of we have a problem with drugs, so we're going to start welfare drug testing. That's a load of cock. That's been tried in four different countries and failed at enormous expense. It is not going to work here. It's rubbish. There is light. I think this is one of the areas where we're going to see movement, is in the medicinal use of drugs. There's a person who's been flying that flag far longer than I, and he'll be speaking a little later. But it will rejuvenate drugs policy discussion in this country and it'll move away from the corridors of power to the dinner table where families can discuss the rights and wrongs and where more importantly voters can discuss the rights and wrongs of drugs policy and I think this is not my graph but I think this is what is going to happen in the next 20 years probably we'll all be still alive our kids will definitely inherit this world but what you'll see is that the unregulated legal market, which you have in Australia for cigarettes and alcohol, particularly alcohol, where you have alcohol advertising in the mid-afternoon where kids are watching cricket. It's a feckin' cowboy land, I tell you. And the unregulated criminal market will shift towards the middle and you'll have a stricter regulation of both elements of this. This is what I see happening in the next 20, 50 years. It is incredibly important when you're in this space, and this is Obama. He's a brighter man than me by a country mile. But his position on any of policies, this was his foreign policy position, he would wake up every day and chant to himself, don't do stupid shit. This we should tattoo our politicians with, somewhere on their forearms so they could see it. Drug testing in schools is stupid shit. Welfare drug testing is stupid shit. And go governments should not be doing more harm in trying to prevent harm from drugs than the drugs themselves. Do clever shit instead. And one of the benefits of reliving my childhood with so many particularly females in my family is I'm forced to see kiddie movies. And there is great truth in many kiddie movies. And this I will leave you with. The very important thing is, is that you know a great deal more about this than the vast majority of Australians. And I would encourage you to, be to have courage to stand up, to speak of your experiences, but by the same token, be kind with the people who stand against you because they're just a little bit slower than you in the uptake. This is what's important. 
more than ever, not just in drugs policy, but across the board, where bad things are happening, when terrible things are happening in this country to refugees, when stupid ideas are coming out about corporate tax and everything, the important thing is to resist. This is the symbol of the resistance from Star Wars, but the safety pin is also important. In the Netherlands in the Second World War, when the Germans took over Holland and persecuted homosexuals, intellectuals, people of different orientations, the community stood together. They wore a safety pin just as a marker, as a signifier to each other that it was going to be okay, that this was a place you could come to. This is a place where you'll be trusted. And that is what Rainbow Serpent is. This is a place where you can all be trusted. So, I'll f finish my rant. The drug treatises are, they're defunct. In 2016, we thought Ungas would obliterate them. They didn't. They will next time round. We deserve, as a population, as parents, a nimble response to the problem of harm. Not the problem of drug consumption, because that's not the problem. The problem is harm from drugs consumption. And what we are being given is something so much less than a liberal or than a, a, a nimble response. There's a whole bunch more research that needs to be done. And we need to be humble enough to learn our lessons from overseas. Because it's a damn fine country, but it might not be the very best country in the world. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.